Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here for class this morning. It is always good to gather to worship and also good to gather to read God's Word. Uh, we'll be today starting a new series on the what are called the pastoral letters or the letters that are written. Um, think of this from a shepherd to a young minister uh, or young ministers. So in the next several weeks, over the next 13 weeks, we'll be going over 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, Titus, and then the book of Philemon, which isn't exactly in the same category, but it's a short book and the others are short, and so it was a way of kind of putting them together. Uh, but those are the books that we'll be going through together. So if you if you have a Bible, this is a great time to turn to 1 Timothy. Go ahead and locate where that is in your Bible. You'll find it that it is about the middle of your New Testament when you start seeing the, the uh letter to the Thessalonians. You'll see 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and then keep your eye open because the, the very next book there is going to be 1 Timothy. And that's where we'll start. That's where we'll start today. We have a lot of material to cover. Today is mostly an introduction, uh, but I think this is important for us to get an idea of what the recipients, recipient of this first letter, recipients of these uh, these four letters that we're going to read, it's important to me that we understand the world that they lived in so that we can hear the letters first uh, through their ears so that we can see things through their eyes and then make that leap to the contemporary culture and say, what is it that we share in common with this original audience? And on those areas that we share things in common, we're able to hear how God's word to them is the very same as his word to us. And so part of today is to set that historical context so that you can hear hear these letters. Uh, but in the end, what we are about to read is God's Word, left, copied, uh, transmitted, spread throughout the world, translated into your language so that you could hear God's Word today, which means that He's our teacher. And so we'll pause before we begin to read His Word and ask that He come and direct our thoughts as we read His Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it's always an honor to open your word and to realize that for us you have left these these words that speak uh, not only to cultures thousands of years ago, but reach across time and bridge right into our culture here in in Alaska at this place and in, in this time. And what we are about to read is your word to us as well. We recognize that. And so we ask that you come and that you be our teacher. That if there's anything that is said or thought that is not from you, may it be swiftly forgotten and swept away. But whatever is from you, we ask that it sink deep into our hearts, into our mind, that we will have true faith and a clean conscience before you. And we ask in that way that you come and you be the one who teaches us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our text for the next several weeks is going to be the uh, the two Timothys, Titus and Philemon. Today we'll start on the book of Timothy, and you'll see us uh, put up a slide like this each week. It's just a reminder that we are, are reading a letter that was written first to somebody else. In fact, the book of, of Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, are personal letters. So in the New Testament, oftentimes you'll pick up a letter and you'll read a book like to the Corinthians or a book to the Ephesians or a book to Galatians. These were letters that were written to entire churches. But when you pick up the, the letter uh, to First Timothy, you're reading a personal letter that was written to one young man, 
named Timothy. Now, we call these the pastoral letters because uh, there is a sense in which this letter is coming from a shepherd of a younger minister, or because in these letters it also describes how to uh, organize the church. And so they'll speak a lot in these books about pastors. But there is a, 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 a leader, a leading tone or a shepherding tone to these books, very personal letters in which a Paul, you get to hear, express not just his feelings about entire congregations, but you get to hear his ex- expressing his feelings about individual ministers, people that he has uh, walked with. So the author of First and Second Timothy is Paul. Now, there are a few modern scholars who will debate that because modern scholars like to debate everything, um, but the evidence weighs pretty heavy on Paul being the one who wrote this, and you'll see that in our reading today. The recipient was a young man named Timothy, Now, Timothy, you'll learn more about as you read through the book of Acts. Now, remember that the book of Acts is our historical document within the New Testament, and it introduces you to many of the people that you'll hear about later in the letters and introduces you to the places that a lot of the letters were written. In Acts chapter 14, we have Paul for the first time showing up in this place called Lystra. Uh, There's a little turmoil there. Everywhere Paul went, he seemed to cause a riot. (laughs) So they uh, actually stoned Paul there. He had to leave for a while, came back a few weeks later. And when he came back, uh, there were people in Lystra who became Christians. And so there was a small church there. He would leave, go throughout that missionary journey, come back. And you read about this in Acts chapter 16, uh, when Paul comes back and there's a young man in the church there whose father was a Greek but his mother was a Jewish, uh, a Jewish, a Jewess. She was a Jewish woman. And his father had probably died, we think, at that point, or at least he would not long after that. And they had a son, this, this a Greek man and this Jewish woman had a, a son named Timothy. And Timothy, in that culture, would have been considered illegitimate because he came from this mixed marriage. But he was well spoken of by everybody in that little church that grew up in Lystra. So that when Paul comes back around, uh, Timothy, who might have been one of the people earlier on who actually stood around him and protected him after he was uh, stoned, you know, on a previous visit, uh, Paul sees Timothy and he selects Timothy and says, would you go with me on my trips? I mean, imagine, imagine that the honor of that. Paul comes to him and says, would you, would you go with me? And he does. And so Timothy, at that point on, starts to travel with Paul. Paul will spend time, uh, uh, much of the time, in a city named Ephesus. Now, on these missionary journeys, you know, Paul ends up going uh, from Ephesus. He'll go to Philippi. He'll go to Athens. He'll go, we'll see in a minute, a map of all these places Paul goes. But when he goes and travels to a, a place... A church would be established, a church would grow, and you can imagine the early days of a church not knowing how to organize the church, trying to figure out how to be a Christian in a new culture uh, would be difficult. And so Paul would leave a minister in many of these congregations and train them how to raise the church. And one of those young ministers that he leaves in Ephesus is Timothy, when Paul goes off on other missionary journeys. And we think that this letter was written about 62 to 67 A.D. This would have been right after Paul got out of prison in Rome. So when you read through the book of Acts, the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. He probably was released from house arrest several years after that, and then he travels back to Ephesus and into Macedonia. We only know that through secondary evidence, but when he's in Macedonia, he writes a letter, and that letter is written to Timothy, and the reason he writes this letter is to tell Timothy, 
to manage the church in Ephesus well. And so what you're about to read and about to hear is a letter that is written from Paul, one of the apostles selected by Jesus, written to a young minister. It is a private letter. You, in a moment, get to read someone else's mail. And it's, uh, imagine a letter, it'd be like a letter sent to Tony, you know, the minister of a congregation, probably a younger version of Tony, uh, and at a younger, to a younger church, uh, than this congregation. But that's the type of letter you're getting. It's as if you've, you've stumbled across a very personal letter written to Timothy. A little bit of, um, geography. The city of Ephesus is here on the western side of modern-day Turkey. This is where the letter is written to. So Timothy, at the time that he receives this letter, is living in Ephesus. You'll notice some of the other major cities that it will come up in the Bible and in uh, Acts. Of course, everything starts here in Jerusalem. This is where Jesus died for our sins, where he was buried, where he was raised, where people saw him. And then he appears here to Paul. And then Paul goes on the missionary journeys. And you hear about the church being set up in Antioch and how Christianity spreads across uh, Asia through modern-day Turkey, and then it goes into uh, Macedonia, which is this part of what is modern-day Greece. And uh, you hear about Philippi, which uh, there's a book written to the Christians in Philippi called Philippians. Yeah, and uh, and then there's Athens and Corinth, and of course Rome, where Paul was under house arrest. So you see all these familiar places. The place we're going to focus in on and lower our magnifying glass on is this city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is centrally located, and it will it will come up many times in your Bible. There was an entire letter written to the church in Ephesus, and the name of that book is Ephesians. Yeah, and so you can read, uh, in fact, much of the theology that Paul will refer to in Timothy, which is just alluded to and says, remember what I taught you, you can flip over to the Ephesians to see, okay, this is what he, what he taught. And so uh, there was a church there in Ephesus, and there were many famous people who went through this congregation and were there at some point in time. Uh, you've heard of Priscilla and Aquila, the young couple who were there as, as Christians, and they taught Apollos. Apollos, this incredible teacher that came up from Alexandria and, and was uh, a great teacher. Uh, but Priscilla and Aquila had to take him out to lunch and say, hey, we need to teach you uh, a little more about Christianity. And so they helped fine-tune uh, the message that Paulus taught. Apollos would end up going on to Corinth. Um, and then Paul, of course, would spend time in Ephesus. And while he was there, there would be this congregation that was growing. They would uh, establish shepherds or uh, elders in that congregation. And then there was the young man, Timothy, who was there. Paul would go on from Ephesus, and he would go into Macedonia and spend time in these other places. But he would write letters back. One of those letters is this book of First Timothy. And not long after this letter arrived, by not long, I mean within a few years, after Paul teaches Timothy how to um, how he is to select elders and leaders in the church, do you know who one of the the people is who shows up in Ephesus? This is mostly tradition. The Apostle John makes his way as a part of the diaspora away from the central part of uh, uh, Israel, and he comes to live in Ephesus. And most scholars think Ephesus is where the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. 
it was from Ephesus that he wrote the letters, specifically First John, maybe Second and Third John as well. But can you imagine that Timothy, <laughs> this young preacher who has to select who in our congregation would be uh, a good shepherd? You know, it has these qualities that we'll read about. And there's the Apostle John. You know, can you imagine reading something from Scripture and then uh, uh, being able to look out and see somebody who sat with Jesus? Uh, who walked with Jesus, who heard Jesus teach. That's the kind of people that are in this congregation, you know, there in Ephesus. To understand the book, uh, the letter that was written to Timothy, it's important to know something about Artemis. Now, Artemis is one of the goddesses of the Greek pantheon. We don't have time to go through the endless genealogies and all the myths of ancient Greece, but I think it is helpful to know that Artemis was a twin and this will come up in the reading. She was a twin, and she was born first. Does anybody know who her dad is in Greek mythology? It's Zeus. That's right. Yeah, so Zeus is Artemis's father. Now, this is not by Hera. Remember, Zeus was married to Hera. Actually, Zeus had a little liaison with a lady named Lota, and Lota is the goddess who uh, had, you know, was, became pregnant with twins, And the first of those twins born, and this is important, so I'll say it again, the first one born was Artemis. And she was born just outside of Ephesus. But for the next nine days in the mythology, her mother labored, and it was a terrible labor, and it was a painful labor. And so it was Artemis who was born with all of her cognitive faculties and her ability to help, who actually helped deliver her brother, and her twin brother was Apollo. You've heard of that god. And so you had these twins that grew up together. But Artemis was born right there outside of Ephesus. And because she had helped her brother to be born, she became the goddess of midwifery. And she was the one who helped make sure that every child that was born would be born safely, that they would be saved through the childbearing process. And so people looked to Artemis for that, though she herself never had a relationship was never married to another god, never had children by another god. In fact, she had asked Zeus to make her a virgin forever because she saw what pain her mother had gone through. And so there's this sense in which she became the ancient equivalent of the independent, powerful uh, woman who protected the city. And she had a great temple. And that uh, temple there in Ephesus was considered by many of the ancients one of the great wonders of the world. This was called the seventh wonder of the ancient world. It served as a place where people worshipped this goddess Artemis. That statue you saw earlier would be set up in the temple itself. People would pay tribute to Artemis and give money in order to, in a sense, receive her protection. And so this became one of the most wealthy banks of the ancient world. Of course, this is a place where people would come and worship Artemis as well. And so there would be sacrifices of bulls and so forth to Artemis. But she was the protector. And you can still see some of this today. Uh, This is what's left, that one post of that entire seventh wonder of the ancient world. Um, It's a little bit of an ironic twist. Uh, A lot of the stones of that building were later used in the medieval time to build churches uh, in in that region. But this is what's left of that spot. There were also libraries. A scholarship was highly valued in Ephesus. Now, this library was actually built after the writing of the letter of First Timothy, but I show this to you just to say that scholarship was highly valued in this uh, region, you know, in Ephesus. 
And, um, and you can still see that library of Celsus today. But you do read in Acts how Paul, when he was there and was kicked out of the synagogue because he was teaching things that didn't jive well, you know, with the Jewish teaching, he went to teach in the hall of Tyrannus. And so there were these areas where he could go and teach in the local uh, university. Uh, there's an incredible amphitheater, and you read about this in Acts chapter 19, when you remember Paul had made one of the metal workers, Demetrius, mad. And he riled up the crowd, and they all rushed into the theater. And so imagine this theater full of people uh, all yelling down at the crowd, and they're all yelling for hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. And they're all yelling. A guy named Alexander tries to come out, settle them down, and they keep yelling the louder. And finally, the city clerk, the mayor, has to come and say, Hey, we settle down. The Romans are going to come and accuse us of rioting. And so they end up settling down the... Uh, the riot there. But that's in Ephesus, and you can still sit in that same place today. Look at this, before, after, before, after. It's still uh, still a place you can go. These I show this to you to show you we are not reading mythology here. You're reading a letter written to a very real person in a very real place in a very real time. Uh, you could walk down the streets of Ephesus, and you'll see out in the distance the, the bay. Uh, that's the harbor where people would come in. It was a It was obviously a a city of commerce, much like Anchorage. You could think of this as an anchorage on western Turkey. And so we share many things in common with a culture that had this mix of of goods and services and cultures and peoples from all over the world concentrated in one place. And then this is an aerial view of Ephesus that uh, shows you what it would have looked like in this period of time. Uh, I show you this just to give you this aerial idea of the city that your brothers and sisters who lived in Ephesus lived in a city much like yours. And they had huge uh, auditoriums and the theater that you just saw. Uh, they had this temple, which was also the major bank, you know, the temple to Artemis, uh, the different streets that you just looked down into that harbor. But imagine, imagine a courier who arrives from Macedonia on a boat, and in his hand is a roll. It's a small parchment roll and he arrives in the harbor and he makes his way or passes it on to a courier who takes it up the street past the theater and then he winds up here somewhere into these poor neighborhoods of Ephesus and we don't know exactly where but you can imagine him going up to a house and knocking on the door and handing over a parchment and saying I'm looking for Timothy a letter from Paul of Tarsus and he hands him this parchment and that young man opens up the parchment and breaks the wax seal, and he rolls it out. Now, would you like to hear what that letter says? Let's read that letter. Now, this will take a little bit of time, but I think it's important for you to hear the entire letter in context before we go back in and try to decide what different things mean. What you're about to hear is the letter that was written from Paul to Timothy, and this is 1 Timothy Now, I'm going to read from the New International Version. You'll have your own versions that you'll follow along. Uh, We'll be studying from the English Standard Version. The reason I'm using different versions is to show you places where translators have trouble um, and then places where they all uh, totally agree. And so I think it's important to read text from different translations if you're not reading it from the original, uh, you know, language itself. So let uh, let me do our first reading from the NIV. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, 
and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men, the word men there is actually persons, this could be men and women, teach them not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Think about the genealogies of all the Greek gods as well as the Jewish genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good. If one uses it properly, we also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, and perverts. These would be uh, male uh, homosexuals. For slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful appointing me to his service even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, or the word there is foremost, or I am the, the protos, the, the prototype of all sinners. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you might fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women 
to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn. And I pause there to let you feel the weight of that in the first century. A woman should be allowed, it says, to learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach, or another way of translating that is, I'm not saying that a woman should teach or have authority over a man. She must be, my version says silent. The word there is quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Remember the uh, myth of Artemis, uh, where the emphasis would be on the woman born first. But this is a different uh, way that Paul is, is countering the mythology at the time. And Adam was not the one deceived. You might say he disobeyed, but he wasn't deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing, not by Artemis, but by God, if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer, or what we might call an elder, uh, must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, Let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives, or their women, are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up to glory. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Since teachings come through, or such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron, they forbid people to marry. Remember, Artemis was not married, and part of following her cult was not to marry. And they order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who knew and who know the truth. For everything that God created is good. 
And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. For this, we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's what we're doing. To preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow, who is really in need and is left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves, because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things that ought not so, or they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is an unbeliever has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are well worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. 
Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better, because those who benefit from their services are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus which God will bring about in his own time God the blessed and only ruler the king of kings and lord of lords who alone is immortal. All this is in contrast to Artemis, the Ephesian, the one who is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age. Imagine uh, people in Ephesus thought to lay up a treasure for yourself meant put it in the local temple treasury. And Paul's playing on that. 
and says, no, your treasure is in the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. And Timothy rolled up the parchment and took a deep breath. And he did what you would do, I assume. He went back and read it again. And he treasured the statements that were made, the endearing statements made about him. I am, I am someone's true son. And to be reminded of this faith that he had made a confession to take hold of. And then feeling the burden of the job that he was being handed, went back to read the details. Uh, that's what you are intended to do. Now that you have heard the letter, uh, you are meant to take a deep breath and then go back and read it again. And hear this letter written to Timothy, which he copied and then passed on to you. Well, in the next few moments that we have left, what I'd like to do is go through just the introduction to Timothy. Now that you've heard the whole thing in context, let me just give you the uh, a few of the hooks, if you will, that are in the introduction, so that as you go back and read this again in your own translation, uh, you will you will catch in this introduction the important you know hooks that then lead you into the different uh, sections. So the letter begins as you uh, saw with Paul stating. I am the one who's writing this letter. So back then, they did not start a letter by saying, Dear you, and then put in your name. The letter started with who was writing the letter. That was very helpful, and we now do that in our emails, right? <laughs> email starts with, okay, I see who the email is from. And so we've just returned to the ancient way of communicating. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of, and catch this phrase, God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Notice this phrase, God our Savior. The statement, the going statement in Ephesus is not that any other of the gods in the pantheon were their savior. The statement was Artemis is our savior. And so beginning this letter, Paul uses a phrase that you won't see in many of the other letters, especially the ones to other cities. Usually if he mentions savior, he'll mention how Jesus is our savior or Christ is our savior. But here in direct conflict with what Timothy would be you know, fighting against within their town. He says, God is our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. And this would be the other side of what uh, Timothy was, uh, you know, struggling against, were the Jewish contingent of people, the, the, the Jews who lived in Ephesus, who would have been saying that Jesus is not the Messiah. And so there would be this conflict on both ends. And so Paul begins the letter right outside the gate by setting up the uh, the, 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 the conflict, if you will, or the power punch to say God is our Savior and Christ Jesus is our hope. To Timothy, my true child. And this, you should catch and feel it the same way Timothy would have felt it growing up in this mixed situation where his father's a Greek, his mother's a Jew, being called illegitimate his whole life. But he gets a letter from Paul and the word there, true, is actually the word legitimate. My legitimate child in the faith. And so this beautiful welcome, you are a part of a family as followers of Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may 
this version says, charge certain persons, it could be men or women, not to teach any different doctrine. The word different there is uh, a different doctrine. It's one word. It just means, or the literally would be hetero teaching. <clears throat> so you've heard the word hetero. The example I can think of is heterosexual versus homosexual. So the word hetero there means two different types. <clears throat> and so when it's used here, what he's saying is charge people not to be teaching one thing one day and another thing the next. You know, it's not a mix of teaching, but to stick with what is absolutely true. Stay away from myths and endless genealogies, whether it's the genealogy of the Jews or the genealogies of the Greek myths. He says, stay away from that, uh, but teach what is absolutely true and in line with faith. And then he uses this word stewardship and says, rather uh, stick with this... Uh, stewardship that is from God by faith. The word stewardship there, again, is just one word, and it's, it's kind of a combo word, house and law. And what he's saying is, keep the rules of the house. Uh, and you'll see that throughout the letter. Your job, Timothy, is to keep the rules in the house. As our kids are growing up, we have two rules in our house. If you ask any of our kids, what are the two rules in the house? And they'll all tell you by the time they're three years old, they'll say there's two rules. The first one is, obey God. And the second one is, Honor your mother. <laughs> we, we just say, those are the rules of the house. And then it's about the time they're teenagers, they go, wait a minute, that kind of covers everything, <laughs> you know. And that's right. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy is uh, charging you to keep the rules of the house with a good conscience. And then he, he pauses and he says, now, I, I, don't get me wrong here. The law is good. And Paul's making a disclaimer here. The law is good especially if people follow it and if it's used lawfully because there are certain people and he gives one of these ethical lists where he talks about people who do things that are illegal or back then unlawful meant not just against the local law but also what we would say unethical. It's not uh, ethically lawful to do. And he says the law is good for that, for pointing that out. And this comes from this comes from God. So Paul is, is saying, I'm not saying get rid of the law. You almost hear echoes of Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it. Uh, but then he transitions. And Paul says, I thank God who gives me strength because he saved me. And you notice how Paul uh, basically says, Jesus selected me to be his servant. And you hear in this Paul saying, what an honor to be selected by Jesus for this great work. And then in the midst of that, Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. It wasn't Artemis who came to save. Uh, Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The word there is the word proto. You've heard of a prototype, the very first type to come out. Paul says, you want the prototype of a sinner? That's me a blasphemer, a persecutor, a disobedient uh, follower of of God. But he selected me, and I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, as the foremost or the prototype of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, he saved me so that you would have no excuse to say God can't save me too. And so Paul lays it on the line and says, I am an example of what Christ can do in the life of a person. Remember, he's writing this to Timothy. And so Timothy would hear this as, there is nobody, either you 
nobody in your congregation, nobody in Ephesus, none of your neighbors who are following after false gods, those who are stuck on endless genealogies or stuck with the old law, this message Timothy heard, there is no one who is out of reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so Timothy hears this, and then he's given this charge. Paul says, I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The word wage there is the word lead soldiers into battle. So may you lead people into this battle fighting, not some war of the Romans. They would be familiar with Romans being present there in Ephesus at the time. But the good fight of faith, holding two things in hand, faith and a good conscience. And so the image there is a a person on the high seas on a ship, and they've got two hands on the wheel, although I don't think that's how they drove ships back then. So one hand would be, you know, on the till or the rudder. The other would have a rope, you know, connected to one of the sails. I just told you everything I know about being a shipman. But the point is, you've got your, your hands are doing something. You're not just enjoying the ride like a tourist on a boat. When you're on the ship, you've got your hands on things. And that's the image here to Timothy. I charge you, do not let go of these two things. Keep your hand firmly on your faith, this uh, product of proof in the justice of God, your trust in God, and the clear conscience. Keep your hands on those. Because, as he concludes, some have let go of those, rejecting those two things. Some have shipwrecked their faith. And then he mentions two people that, that Timothy would have known. You don't know who they are. We'll talk about maybe later some of these names that come up later. We don't know who they are. But when people let go of these two things, faith and a good conscience, their faith is shipwrecked. And so that's the message for you today to hear as you get to read a letter that was written to Timothy that he copied and then passed on. And eventually it comes into your hands so that you can hear, too, this message that is a follower of Christ in an Anchorage-type city uh, somewhere in the world where there's a congregation that you and I hear that same message to hold tight to our faith and a good conscience. And the rest of the letter is going to tell us how do you do that as a, as a church. So I hope that you'll come and be a part of our class for this uh, semester. And before we get into the next few weeks, I hope you will take time to go back and read the letter again, start to finish as it was intended. So thanks for being here. Let's prepare now for worship.